This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is David Rutledge. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone. I hope this finds you in a cheerful frame of mind, or maybe if you're not feeling particularly cheerful, then this episode might turn things around for you. If you're looking to read something that's going to give you a few laughs, you're unlikely to reach for a volume of Friedrich Nietzsche's philosophy. Nietzsche is popularly thought of as one of those incorrigible gloom merchants, the philosopher who predicted a great unravelling of human culture in the aftermath of the death of God, also a man who suffered acute psychic and physical torment throughout much of his life. So it might come as a surprise to learn that Nietzsche can actually be laugh-out-loud funny. There's a lot of joy in his work, a lot of joking around, and an ethical aversion to taking oneself too seriously. Nietzsche believed that the question, what do I matter, should be the motto of every philosopher. But then, on the other hand, Nietzsche also believed in the necessity of a certain kind of self-cultivation, and in spite of his use of humour, there's no doubt that he was a very serious thinker, dealing with apocalyptic themes who considered his own work to be of vital importance. So, in short, Nietzsche was something of a paradox, and I'm delighted to be talking with someone today who can untangle some of these threads. His name is Jamie Parr, and he's a lecturer in the School of Philosophy at Australian Catholic University in Sydney. Nietzsche uses humour in a wide variety of ways. Um, he's, I'd say the most important way is that he's very much alive to the way that humour uh, skewers and deflates and undermines pretension. And he uses this facet of humour to often merciless effect. For example, one of the things that he uh, ad- admires in uh, Pascal, a figure with whom he's... Uh, very much interested throughout his intellectual career is uh, the way in which Pascal essentially moves from being um, a rather funny writer in the earlier part of his career uh, with, say, the provincial letters to um, being a somewhat less funny and a rather more gloomy author uh, once he becomes fully enmeshed in his uh, Christianity. But generally speaking, uh, Nietzsche is a master stylist and as part of that range, he... Uh, deploys sarcasm, puns, and a whole range of things, um, not merely as a kind of entertaining gloss, although there is that level of it, but really to to problematise and to um, overturn key issues uh, that he uh, is concerned with. Um, so he's he's very much concerned with um, you know deflating uh, the pretensions of other philosophers, for example, um, concerned with. Um, calling into question major claims made by enormously important cultural and philosophical institutions such as uh, the established churches and uh, so on. So it's very much more and very much more important in uh, Nietzsche than simply uh, kind of light relief. Let's talk about the pretensions of philosophers, because he's very critical, isn't he, of a kind of hubris to which he sees philosophers as particularly prone. What's the nature of that hubris? How does he describe it? One of the key things that Nietzsche is uh, concerned to puncture is the idea that it's at all possible um, for a single individual to arrive, as it were, at the solution to existence uh, within their own lifetime. Uh, Nietzsche thinks that existence is um, very much more complicated mysterious and in many ways unknowable, as it were, in its essence, than the pretensions of 
most philosophers would uh, suggest. So he, for example, points to a figure who for him was most current, uh, namely Schopenhauer, as, um, as an individual who takes himself to have rather pleasingly laid his hand upon the uh, capital T truth of things. And for Nietzsche, this is to give in to a, uh, an all-too-human desire to want to bask in the pleasure of, of being the unriddler of existence. Now, Nietzsche is extremely sympathetic to, and as it were, in the grip of the idea of life as, as it were, as a riddle and the, and the activity of attempting to kind of unriddle things. So it's not to say that he disparages the attempt, but, but the idea that, that one could arrive at that after even 50 years of study, or indeed sooner, he thinks is, um, is just one example of kind of human hubris. Right. But for Nietzsche, the, the riddle of existence in part presents itself as a problem, which is that we all crave meaning and purpose in our lives. We all want to make sense of the darker aspects of life. We want death and suffering to have some sort of higher purpose to them. And yet we struggle to find that purpose and that meaning. Many of us never find it. And Christianity purports to have a solution to this problem, but it's a solution that Nietzsche finds unacceptable. So what is this remedy that Christianity offers and what's Nietzsche's response to it? Nietzsche's relationship to Christianity is actually much more nuanced and complicated uh, and actually much more intimate than most people, I think, people who only know Nietzsche through the kind of slogans of God is dead and so forth, um, will be able to to, um, appreciate because at least as I read Nietzsche, Nietzsche is a in a certain sense, a, a deeply religious thinker, or at least a, a thinker whose primary concerns are drawing from the same set of problems and concerns that Christianity does. So Christianity's solution, well, really we see a kind of alloy in Christianity, the, the creation of an alloy between suffering and uh, joy, as it were. So one way to read the whole drama of um, the incarnation of Christ is as a way of forging this alloy for all human beings after that event between the pain that we will experience in life and the ability to access a kind of saving or triumphant joyousness that we only have access to because of that passion. So the standard, as it were, or a kind of thumbnail sketch of the Christian passion would be something like, you know, in order to provide a reconnection back to to God for human beings, God sends his son to be incarnated as a human being, to experience the worst that human beings can um, meet out to one another, uh, to be killed by it, and then to, as it were, conquer death and to resurrect and then to ascend. And in doing this, the bare terrible fact of death, uh, death as, as the annihilation of existence, is overcome. What this means, roughly speaking, for the believer is that pain, suffering, uh, the problem of existence generally, having been born and overcome by the Messiah, is now capable and indeed um, must inevitably host within it a kind of pulse of joyousness and festivity. Now, for Nietzsche, this solution um, is unacceptable, and perhaps most fundamentally because it rests on an understanding that 
this joyousness and so forth is bought at the expense of anchoring everything that is valuable and important in life beyond life. Uh, so what Nietzsche really objects to here is the transcendent aspect of it, that we can only have access to this alloy of suffering and pain and this victorious affirmation and joy through looking beyond this life to another life that we prioritise, to um, you know, think of all, all that is most important in life as actually lying beyond the only life that we will ever know. Now, for Nietzsche, this is just unacceptable. Um, this is to uh, deprioritize life as we live it and um, to do so in favor of some uh, fabricated, imagined, and ultimately rather cowardly beyond. Now, this is when it gets particularly interesting because Nietzsche himself, in a sense, wants to fashion this kind of alloy between suffering and pain. Uh, Nietzsche himself looks for that kind of transfiguring experience or experiences that allow us to take up a point of view on life that uh, resists despair and indeed overcomes despair and transits us toward toward joyousness. Uh, so in a very real sense, these you know what Nietzsche is attempting to do and what Christianity already does is very, very similar. Very, very similar. It's just that for Nietzsche the transcendent aspect is is um is unacceptable. And so he needs to develop a way in which this kind of transfiguring solution can unfold uh, without reference to, to a God that sits outside the world. One thing that Nietzsche identifies in the Christian solution, if you like, to the problem of, of suffering is a sort of vanity, a great self-aggrandizement as well. And by way of exemplifying this or pointing it out, he looks to uh, Pascal, the 17th century French philosopher, who was a, a scientist turned Catholic theologian, which is interesting. And in Pascal, Nietzsche identifies that sort of overweening pride that he sees as, as characteristic of Christian faith. He finds it in a number of texts, particularly in a prayer that Pascal wrote towards the end of his life when he was seriously ill, the prayer to ask of God the proper use of illnesses. Very interesting text and very instructive for our purposes. Where is the pride and the self-absorption in that prayer, according to Nietzsche? Yeah, the prayer to ask of God the proper use of illnesses is a text that's not really particularly well-known in English-speaking Pascal scholarship, but it is a remarkable text. Now, so far as we can tell, Pascal wrote this prayer during a period of excruciating illness of which he was more than familiar. And it is a prayer directed to God to beg God to give Pascal the strength to suffer his what I'm sure was an excruciating physical and also, at this point, spiritual suffering in the manner that Pascal believes is required of him as a Christian. Now, the vanity here is that, well, firstly, that there is a God who is particularly and indeed um, penetratingly interested in a chap called Pascal. And he cares very much about how I deal with this hardship because, well... Uh, I would very much like to think that God has chosen me to uh, be saved um, in Pascal's scheme of Christianity. One of the very few, one of the elect, who uh, hopefully, he thinks, um, will enjoy salvation while the great mass of the human herd will burn. So right away we have this sense 
which is given to Pascal fundamentally by the the version of Christianity that that he uh, ascribed to, which is that there is not only a God, but a God who busies himself with a close scrutiny of these tiny humans in order to ensure that they are abiding by the rules. So for Nietzsche, this, this prayer, I think, would be evidence of the way in which Christian faith generally, and particularly the Christian, the version of Christianity that Pascal was caught up in, is this pernicious concoction of fear-mongering um, belief in such things as damnation and, and hell and so forth, and a kind of overweening arrogance that one's tiny all-too-human existence for this brief time on this tiny planet in the middle of just a you know a unimaginably vast ocean of of space is of importance enough to God that He would punish you if you suffered in the wrong way. At the same time, the prayer ends with this extraordinary offering of Pascal, offering of himself to God uh, as um, being for God, being for the crucified Christ, the sight of Christ's ongoing salvific passion. And so there is this real offering of Pascal himself as a place where Christ's own ongoing cosmic suffering can be merged with Pascal's human suffering such that Christ will save Pascal in saving himself through this perpetual process of uh, passionate self-sacrifice and self-salvation. And that's not devoid of arrogance from one point of view, that, that one can kind of hoist oneself up and offer oneself to the most fundamental cosmic process in order to therefore um, secure one's place in heaven, or at least enable oneself to kind of stay on the right track to reach the prize. You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, talking about that famous humorist Frederick Nietzsche, someone who's not widely known for his cheerfulness, and yet much of his work is given to the pursuit of joy and laughter in the face of suffering. And my guest is the Australian Catholic University philosopher Jamie Parr. Nietzsche is a little like Pascal in that he was plagued by chronic illness for most of his life. How did he deal with it according to his own understanding of transfiguration, this, this turning the pain of life into something beautiful and affirmative? Because Pascal offers himself to Christ. What does Nietzsche do with himself? Yeah, well, again, this is just one other area where Nietzsche is so constantly caught up with these religious, particularly Christian categories of, in this case, you know, salvation, transfiguration, and so forth. But he's always seeking to kind of resist them or uh, retool them, uh, recontextualize them, and so forth. I mean, one of the most um, informative cases from Nietzsche's own biography uh, would be the pain that he suffered after a failed attempt to create, I suppose, what one one might call a kind of chaste menage a trois with a friend of his, Paul Ray, and, um, and a uh, rather remarkable woman called uh, Lou von Salome. Once that idea fell through, Nietzsche was bereft 
and in a tremendous amount of suffering, uh, kind of psychic suffering. Um, but as so often was the case with Nietzsche, psychic suffering bled over very much into physical suffering. He was a, uh, an exquisitely, agonizingly sensitive human being. And so for Nietzsche, suffering, whether it's physical or psychic, was a complex phenomenon that was not simply by no, and perhaps not even primarily a negative experience. For him, it was an opportunity to allow his will, as it were, to be stimulated into action. Uh, it was an opportunity to, in passing through that kind of, that abyss of darkness and, and pain and debilitation uh, and resentment and anger and all of these emotions to, as it were, to keep one's eyes open and to learn in um one of the uh, prefaces that Nietzsche wrote in uh, 1888, sorry, 1886, uh, to be um, appended to future editions of his earlier works, uh, Nietzsche speaks very, uh, very eloquently about the way in which great suffering is an opportunity for us to learn enormous amounts about points of view, ideas, and uh, so forth that we would otherwise not have access to. So periods of great Suffering were instructive. They were also opportunities in which he could turn all the resources at his disposal as a writer, as an artist in a general sense, to making something of that pain, turning that pain into something beautiful. Uh, for example, he, when he withdraws from Germany uh, following the end of this um, failed menage a trois, he writes to a friend, explaining that he now feels pregnant again, pregnant in a spiritual sense, pregnant in, in the sense that he needed to turn the muck of that experience into some kind of philosophic gold. So for Nietzsche, transfiguration, um, the drive to turn the basis experiences that we can have into, ideally, into gold, into the highest of experiences, is something innate, um, innate to him, innate to many of the um, you know, the highest types. And generally, it's something that all human beings crave. They, we, we all crave an experience whereby the problem of life and the difficulty of life is, even if only temporarily, resolved into its opposite. And we can't stop doing that. But what we need to do, he thinks, is to stop indulging in its Christian version, which for him is uh, pernicious and increasingly anachronistic. Even though he continually borrows from them and subverts uh, the very patterns and, and uh, language, in many cases, of that Christian solution. But there is a sort of self-effacement in this, ideally, for Nietzsche too, isn't there? And again, we come back to this phrase, what do I matter, which Nietzsche would like to see sort of hung over the gate of every philosophy academy in Europe. So you have that, what do I matter? But on the other hand, Nietzsche believes in the cultivation of one's individual self, and, and that's a very disciplined and serious process that's central to his ethics, becoming who you are. That seems to stand in, in a kind of tension with his insistence that one should laugh at oneself as a, a wretched and insignificant being. How does he resolve that? Does he resolve that? Yeah, no, I think he does, but it's subtle. So, for example, the first thing, perhaps the most important thing above all to note here is that Nietzsche wants us to undergo the kind of existential transformation that we would undergo if we took seriously the fact 
that we no longer possess an immortal soul. So, of course, the idea of, of an immortal soul is, is at the very core of the Christian view of the human being. That adventure of being human being over now uh, with the so-called death of God and the end of Christianity. And for Nietzsche, we have, we have to embrace the idea that actually, no, no, we possess immortal souls, that, that we do not steward through life an immortal element that is of such extraordinary importance that we are constantly terrified of making a misstep and therefore imperiling this immortal soul, which would then, one presumes, once we die, go on to immortally suffer if we've made enough missteps. Um, so for Nietzsche, jettisoning this idea of an immortal soul and embracing the idea of our mortality, he knows very well that this is a major psychological shift. If we can make that shift, he thinks, we will actually be able to cultivate a way of living that is less frantic, less afraid, less driven by a desperate need to come to a solution to the problem of life, to lay hands on the truth of life prior to one's death. And this, just to loop back to what we spoke of at the beginning about the pretensions of philosophers, this is one aspect of that, which is to say that while we believe that we had an immortal soul, everything mattered very much. Everything was, as it were, running against the clock. You know, we, we only live for a certain amount of time. Life is desperately important because we have an immortal soul. And if you, if you as Pascal said, if you die before, you, before worshipping the true principle, then you're lost. Well, for Nietzsche, we no longer face that problem. We, we no longer have to race through uh, the great libraries of knowledge to, to work out what is true and what is not, to, to worship the correct principle and, and so forth. We can take our time. We can experiment and we, we ought to experiment with different ways of life, with different points of view on life, and so on. So for Nietzsche, there is a radical existential change in the way that we should understand ourselves. And in one sense, and certainly contrasted with the Christian point of view, this is a deprioritization of the human. We no longer sit under the eye of God, a God who takes us all desperately seriously and watches us all the time, which is ever so slightly indecent and so forth. So this for Nietzsche is tremendously freeing. What it requires of us is a concomitant change in our attitude to life. And it, it's a change that requires a certain degree of courage because it requires us to accept the fact that we are, of course, mortal and that there is no immortal second act to the lives that we lead. So this enables us to cultivate a certain calm approach to life whereby we can actually grapple with great problems and deal with, with these issues in a way that we felt we couldn't before because we didn't have the time. We, we, had, we, we had to work out what was true and what was not. Now we can experiment. We don't have to wait, uh, you know, race through to the end. So this slogan, what do I matter, is... I think ultimately it's a vocalisation of what Nietzsche calls the passion of knowledge. It is a way of expressing the fact that actually we are creatures who now in many ways live to know. We live to explore this great riddle of life. But we don't do so in order to you know, win the prize of immortality. Uh, we do so because we are in, in, enraptured by the passion of thinking, the passion of knowledge. 
And that's bigger and broader than any one individual human being. Getting to that point, getting to that kind of emotional view of ourselves and our way of, of kind of comporting ourselves to our mortality is a major part of the task that Nietzsche sets for those who would follow him. So on one hand, we have this very serious emphasis on personal cultivation, on precisely the kind of um, ethical sculpting of oneself that you mentioned. But this is not done in order to whittle oneself into the correct shape in order to pass into heaven. This is done for its own sake in order to practice life as a being that, that lives passionately to know, but in order to, as it were, give oneself away in the end without fear of, of wasting or being in error or falling into sin. Right, and so this is where cheerfulness comes in, and maybe maybe we can finish here because when when we think of Nietzsche and his famous "death of God" pronouncement in the Gay Science, that's an apocalyptic moment where you know there's this madman ranting in the marketplace about a dark and terrifying dissolution that's taking place, but it turns out that for Nietzsche, what the death of God inaugurates is actually something joyful. Can you enlarge on that? So Nietzsche's cheerfulness is uh, of a very particular kind. With Nietzsche, there's, there's always um, these positive emotions, joy, cheer, and so forth, um, are always freighted with, and uh, if you like, uh, infused with, with their opposites. So after the event of the death of God, we face the world as mortal rather than immortal souls. And understanding that and embracing that um, requires a great deal of as it were, a psychological work. One of the ways in which we can take up this point of view on life once we realise that, as it were, God has died and do so with good cheer is, as I mentioned earlier, to understand that we are creatures who live to know and indeed to not merely to live that out but to actively consecrate our lives to that passion to know, to look at existence with the eye of a lover who has been painfully disillusioned by his beloved, but who nonetheless continues to adore. So there is a powerful sense in Nietzsche as Nietzsche confronts the problem of life once God has died, where, as he says himself, the horizon has now become wide open, but we each of us are simply little ships on that infinite ocean. And there's both fear in that, but also exuberance, that we now have this, this great vista of experience. The world of experience has now reopened for us after having been straightened for so long by um, you know, seeing everything with the Judeo-Christian lens. But with that opening comes the, you know, the resurgence of the great problem, which is, well, okay, once we dealt with the problem of, of existence via the Christian means of transfiguration, if we can no longer do that, how do we now do that? And this is where we find in Nietzsche the cultivation of the aesthetic, a turn to music, a turn to laughter, a turn to the passion of knowledge itself as enrapturing, and so on. 
And Jamie Parr is lecturer in philosophy at Australian Catholic University in Sydney. And much of what we've been talking about here is discussed in an excellent chapter that Jamie wrote for a, a recent collection of essays titled Joy and Laughter in Nietzsche's Philosophy. It's published by Bloomsbury and we'll put a link on the Philosopher's Zone website. And I'm David Rutledge. You can find me on Twitter at David P. Zone. Thanks for joining me and I'll see you next time. Thank you.